We're going to read from Exodus chapter 12. If you have a church Bible with you, that's on page 54. Otherwise, it'll come up on the screen for you. Exodus chapter 12, starting at sentence 21. Exodus 12, 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians that spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is the word of God. And, uh, my name is Gav, I'm one of the pastors here. It's great you could join us on a cold and wintry Sunday afternoon. Uh, we're going to walk through the book of Exodus together uh, and see really the character of God as he reveals himself. So go ahead and grab your Bibles or open your phones or your apps, whatever you want to do. Um, Go to the Exodus book if you have it there to track along with me. Um, But we're going to spend some time uh, looking at God's Word. I'm going to pray that the Word of God may come alive. But before I do that, um, maybe I'll just give you like 30 seconds to pray for your own soul. um, That you you may, may come before God now and hear Him. If your heart has grown cold towards Jesus, if you are feeling distant from God, today we're going to look at the heart of the Gospel. So I want to give you time now to pray for your own soul. And then I'll pray. Take 30 seconds now. Great God, we want to thank you that your word is true, that it is living and active, that we can meet you and hear your voice even today as we open it and have taught faithfully. Father, I want to pray for our own souls today, for those of us who are feeling um, cold or distant towards you, like we've heard this a hundred times, a thousand times, and it really does not impact us anymore. We want to pray this afternoon that as we look at your word, as we look at really what it means to be a follower of you and how you have loved us and you, you have saved us, so that would, with almost like the first time we've heard it again, renew our souls, revive us, we ask. For those of us who don't know you yet, we want to pray, Lord, you would show us your goodness and your grace as we open the book of Exodus. Father, for wherever we're at with you, we want to pray that you would just quiet in our minds and our souls, that we can sit here and want to hear and hunger for your word, your voice to us. Thank you so much. You are here by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
And as we gather here, that you promise to be here. And so, Lord, again, show us yourself. Show us your goodness. Help us to see you. We pray all in King Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder if I were to ask you, uh, what is one moment in your life so far that has impacted you the most? What you would say? I'm sure you could, I'm sure you could list a number of in, uh, moments in your life that have really impacted you and that have shaped who you are going forward. But if, you, if it was one moment, what would you say, I wonder? For me, it's hard to nail down one moment. But I can probably point to this one, I think, that has hugely impacted me and who I am and shaped me going forward from that moment on. I was about 21 years old, I think. I was working as a landscape gardener, teaching high school scripture a bit, playing rugby union, all those sort of things, doing a lot of fitness. To be honest, I was a bit of a jock. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. I'll confess that to you now, right? And I can remember the time having a real issue with anger as well. So I was an angry jock, the worst kind. That's who I was. And uh, I'd come to know Jesus in my mid-teens. And so I had, um, uh, uh, in my late teens, I had a number of late relationships uh, that were quite meaningless, but had an impact on me. You know, and I, I would date someone, who, a follower of Jesus or not, I didn't really care, and uh, last for a few months and then sort of move on. And it sort of showed where I was at in my life, a bit, bit discontent, and with Jesus too. And then I met my now wife, Katie, and she was very different. Uh, she was and is so kind and caring and compassionate, level-headed, and had this peace about her that I didn't have. And she saw the best in people, wasn't critical or bitter, but showed love and grace. And I really admired this about her, and I still do. And what it showed up, I think, for me was, it's what I wanted to be like, but I, but I wasn't. Anyway, not long after we'd met, uh, I really liked her, so I thought I'd impress her, and so I invited her to come and watch me play a game of rugby. But during that game, I got knocked out by the ball. Um, didn't <laughs> By the ball, right? Exactly. And, um, and didn't impress her so much, but Almost, uh, I think the afternoon after, she said, let's go out. I'm like, wow, it works. You know, anyway, uh, I don't know how it worked, but it did. Anyway, we dated for about two years or so. And I can remember one night after church, we were going to church, and one night after she said, oh, can we chat? I went outside with her, and she said, look, Gav, to be honest, I don't really see myself marrying you. And she said to me, um, you don't take Jesus that seriously, and I want to marry someone who can love Jesus with, and so I think this is, this is done. And I remember... Um, being an angry guy, I got angry. Um, but uh, it, came as a, it came as a huge shock to me. That, uh, Katie, was a, Katie was a few years younger than me. And uh, she, she was basically saying that, that you're not doing well. It was a huge hit to my pride. But she was spot on. And so we broke up. And in God's kindness, I could say God used this moment in my life hugely. Um, uh, I, I was hugely competitive. And so it was almost like Katie throwing down a challenge to me. Um, and I really liked her, so I wanted to get back with her, being dating her again. And so I had, but I had a choice to make. Would I hear Katie's rebuke and, uh, and God's rebuke through that and listen and change, or I could just, just blow it off? And I think at first I, I decided, look, I, I would pursue this, and I, uh, I was first motivated, I think, just to win Katie back. But as, as time got on more and more, I realized that pursuing Jesus and His purpose for me and knowing Him be- better and deeper was actually uh, what I wanted and so understanding who I was as a loved child of God. And I did that. And I got Katie back too, so I won both ways. It was, it was fantastic. But honestly, I can look back at that moment, that night where Katie uh, called me out on who I was, as probably the key moment in my life that has significantly shaped me and who I am today. At a real crossroads, I think. 
just one moment that really changed me. Now, today we come into the book of X, part of the, uh, the next part of Exodus. And uh, I reckon what we're looking at today is sort of where the story has been leading to so far, almost the climax of the book so far. We are going to look at the 10th and final plague uh, that, that finally breaks Pharaoh. Uh, we will see God's mercy in an event known as the Passover. And as this event that leads to this freedom from slavery called the Exodus. And this, this God-ordained event really is hugely significant in shaping the identity and who people, are, the people of Israel are as a people from here. In these chapters, we're going to see God's judgment pass over the Israelites, and He provides a way for them to be free from this judgment. He rescues them. He provides atonement for them. And this event shapes them for the rest of their days throughout the Bible. Again and again in the Bible, you hear them talking about back to, remember the idea, of, remember the Passover, remember the Exodus. And they had to see themselves in light of this event, this one event of God's mercy. You know, I wonder for you, as I said, I wonder for you, what moments or events do you look at in your life or past events that have shaped who you are, who you look to define you? And if you took everything else away, what is the thing you run to to find your meaning, significance, who you are, how you view the world? What do you go to? Where is your hope? What, what is that found in? What informs how you live, what you live for? What is central in your life? Today, I think as we look at this story of the Passover, and we again see the character of God, I think we'll see what God calls us to have central and to live in light of to celebrate and to remember. We're going to look at that as we dive into chapters 11 and 12 of Exodus. Just so you know where I'm tracking, here's some sort of three points I'm going to try and move through. If you want to take notes, here's, uh, here are the topics I'm going to try and hit as we go through. But as you know, the book of Exodus is a narrative, it's a story. It's always helpful to know, and I think really important to know, the context of where we've been and where we're going to to make sense of the story. So far, we've seen that God's people, Israel, were in Egypt, a foreign land which was not their own. And God had promised them a land, but hadn't yet come through on that promise. But He had made them numerous and prosperous, as He had promised. And they were living in a land of Egypt and under a king called Pharaoh, who was at the time the most powerful person on the planet. And they were growing so numerous that out of fear, the Pharaoh of the land enslaved these Israelites, uh, worrying they may rise up against Him. And so enslave them, but also Pharaoh wanted to put a stop to their growth, and so he had all the Hebrew baby boys killed, slaughtered. A mass killing of innocent children. He was driven by power, so much so that he killed children. I think throughout the Bible you most see that Pharaoh is probably the most evil character we meet. And so God hears and sees the evil that is going on in this land, and so he acts, and he, and he raises up, he actually miraculously, miraculously saves a Hebrew boy named Moses. And calls Moses as he grows up to go and confront this Pharaoh and to say to Pharaoh, let God's people go. And God, through Moses, confronts Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet. So you have this, this battle, God versus Pharaoh, the best humanity almost has to offer versus the God of the universe. It's this battle that's going to happen. And last week we saw Pharaoh say, uh, we saw Pharaoh, uh, um, we saw Moses say to Pharaoh, oh sorry, Pharaoh say to Moses, who is this Lord? I don't know him. I don't acknowledge him, and I will not obey. And his heart becomes harder and harder. And so God says to Pharaoh, I will show you who I am, and I will free my people from your slavery, and I'll bring about divine justice on what you have done to them. 
And so last week we saw all these plagues that came down, that rained upon the Egyptian. That is God showing himself who he is by his power. And he's un- unrivaled and he is unequaled. We saw nine out of the ten plagues last week. And today we look at the tenth and final plague. And this plague finally gets Pharaoh's attention. It's the angel of death. Let's have a look at chapter 11. We're going to look at as good as done. Look at sentence one here on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one, more, uh, one plague more I'll bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So God knows this is it. This is the final plague. This plague will break Pharaoh finally. And then he will relent and let people, God's people leave. What's the final plague? Have a look at this. Sentences four to nine. So Moses says, he says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go uh, out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who sits behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all of Egypt, such as had never been before, nor ever will be again. For not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man nor beast, that you may know the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all, these, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses here goes and he warns Pharaoh again. Tells him clearly, midnight, all the firstborn killed. Warning him, this is going to happen. But God is to spare his people from the judgment. Uh, and, because, uh, and because of this final play, God says, um, uh, Pharaoh's servants will say, go out, go. You can go, but just leave. And Pharaoh, God is saying here to Pharaoh, this is going to be my work. I'm telling you, this is going to happen. But looking at the end of sentence, sentence 8, Moses leaves Pharaoh's court and he's angry. Moses is still angry as he's given this warning. It says he is hot with anger. It seems like Moses' patience has run out. Still, we almost read here that Pharaoh will not listen. Even though Moses has warned him again and again, and warning him here of the angel of death coming, Pharaoh will not listen. He will not relent. And so Moses is, is angry. And it seems like Moses does not want, as, as, as anyone would, would not want all this killing to happen, all this death to happen. But Pharaoh will not listen. He will not listen to what God is saying to him. So God is saying, I will show my wonders. I will show you again. Pharaoh has been warned, but he will not obey. Then we jump to chapter 12, and we get uh, God explaining to Moses just how exactly he's going to spare the Israelites. He said in that passage there that he's going to spare the Israelites from this tenth plague. We read it through a sacrifice, a sacrificing of a lamb or a goat without blemish. And getting that lamb's or goat's blood and painting it on the doorway. And the Lord will see the blood and pass over that house. And judgment will not come and take the life of the firstborn. And we'll look at more detail of that in just in a minute. But I want to draw your attention to something from chapter 12. In chapter 12, even, even before the angel of death has come, even before the angel of death has passed over and spared the firstborn, even before they've been released from slavery, God says, it's almost this little weird little interlude in chapter 12, of God tells them how they are to celebrate the Passover. 
how they are to celebrate what God will do. That's why having a meal and remembering and celebrating God's work. And God institutes this meal into the Israelite culture and, 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 and calendar. It's called the Passover meal. Have a look at chapter 12 for me for a second on the screen here. Sentences 2 to 6, basically we read God telling the Israelites of exactly how to do it, how to celebrate this meal, to remember what God has done for them. Sentence 3, it's on the 10th day of the month, they take a lamb. Sentence 6, keep it until the 14th day, kill it at twilight. And God is really serious about the details. He's really outlined what the details of this, of this celebration need to be. It's a big deal. Sentences 7 to 11, roast it on a fire with unleavened bread. Sentence 9, eat all of it. Sentence 11, he even tells them what clothes to wear and how to wear the clothes as they eat the meal. He says, uh, wear it with belts that are fastened, sandals on, staff in hand. It's not a relaxing meal, it's to be done in haste. And God is saying, this is what's going to be like once the angel of death has come and Pharaoh says, leave. It will happen really quickly. And so when you eat the meal in the future, eat it the same way so you remember just what it was like when you're freed from slavery. Sentence 14, he says, this meal, this day is to be remembered throughout all generations. A statute forever, remembering God's kindness and His grace and His salvation that He's bringing His people out of slavery and passing over them in judgment. And they had to be remember this moment and be forever shaped by this moment, remembering how much God has rescued them, how much God loves them and, and, and cares for His people. What I find most interesting is, is that this event hasn't even happened yet. And God's calling them to celebrate it. It's almost like having a birthday party before your birthday happens. It's almost what's happening here. Nothing has changed for the Israelites yet, or even happened, but God's saying, here's how to celebrate it. Seems a bit weird. You know, one thing that I, that I really hate is being fooled or tricked by someone. It's most like my pride, but, but I, if I trust someone, I want to trust their word. Just recently, um, my uh, went to sell my mum's house, and when you sell a house, you have to deal with real estate agents. Um, and so we had to pick one. So I took my role on to try and find the real estate agent for the family to deal with, and so I interviewed four of them, and um, and trying to work out who I could trust, who was telling them the truth, and who was going to work hard. And they all promised the world, all of them. And uh, they would do this, they would say, oh, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll get the best price, we're better than that person, and they're wrong because of this, and, and away they went. And then after I met up with them, uh, all of them kept calling me and texting me and emailing every day, like sharks are circling me, just trying to get me. Sorry if you're a real estate agent, I'm sure you're a great person. Anyway, um, uh, but then we chose one, we chose one of them, and I thought he was, uh, I thought he was pretty good. And a few meetings in, uh, he actually changed his mind and decreased the asking price of the property, once we had signed the contract. And uh, he was almost backing out of what he promised that he was going to do. And I felt, I felt so angry. I felt like I'd been fooled and deceived, and I was going to write angry emails and whatever, and then I'd sort of calm down. The angry jock got out of me again, right? Like, he moved him away. But I felt like, I felt like he'd, he'd, he'd made a sign on purpose, promised the world, and then sort of retracted on that. And, and I hate not being able to trust someone at their word. That's why I'd be no good on this TV show Survivor, I, too personally. Anyway, um, I want to trust someone. When someone says, tell me something, I want to trust them at their word. That I can, they, they're going to do what they're going to say they're going to do. You know, we see in chapter 11 and the start of chapter 12 that God is warning Pharaoh 
telling Moses he's going to rescue and provide salvation for his people. And he even institutes a meal to celebrate what he hasn't done yet. And God is saying, I promise to do this. And we see that he does. And if you read the Bible again and again, you see that God, God promises so many things, but he comes through on those promises because his word can be trusted. He is faithful. And when he says he will do something, he will do it. It is, good, it is as good as done. We can trust God at his word. That is who he is. He promises victory to the Israelites, salvation, uh, freedom. And it's as good as done. Every word, every promise he will deliver on. You know, here's the question. I wonder, how much do we trust God? That's, that's a big question, right? But how much do we actually trust God? When you read the Bible, when you hear of God's promises to you, do you really believe them? Do you really hold on to them? Do you really look to them as the anchor for your soul and the hope that you have? You know, for me, I've, I've thought of this. I think that a lot of my issues and struggles and worries and battles that I face day by day are caused actually by my lack of unbelief, by my lack of distrust of God and His Word. And I think we're often the same, right? We doubt God and His goodness and His promises to us. Do we believe God at His Word? Do we trust Him? And do we even know those promises? I want to encourage us, I want to encourage myself to know the promises of God, to believe them and hold fast to His promises in His Word and knowing that He is trustworthy and knowing that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how I feel, He will come through. And He always will. Because that is who He is. He is faithful. Let's keep looking through this story. We get the second half of chapter 12, and I want to have a closer look at the Passover. This is a huge moment in the history of Israel, and will shape them forever, and how they relate to their God, and who they are. The tenth plague is warned of the angel of death, and by God's grace, he's going to provide a way out, the way out for, of judgment for his people. Have a look at chapter, uh, chapter 12, 21 to 23, and he says this. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lamb for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of the house until it's morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Here is what God is showing here, is how to avoid or how, to, how the judgment will not come upon his people Israel. We read in chapter 12, sentence 12, this final plague is God executing a judgment on the gods of Egypt, because he alone is the Lord. And the only way, the only way for the Israelites to escape judgment, to be passed over, is through a sacrifice. A lamb or a goat without blemish, getting its blood and then painting it all over the doorframe. And when the angel of death comes and invades all of Egypt and sees the blood, he will pass over that house and not enter. And bring, he will not bring death. This is the only way to avoid this judgment. And we read at the end of chapter 12, 
just as God said it would, this happens. Have a look at 29 to 32. These are some full-on verses. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Just as God warned, death and judgment everywhere. Then just as God said, this is the response from Pharaoh. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Pharaoh relents, finally, after the 10th plague, and says, go, you can go. Maybe finally he sees that God is the powerful one. It took him losing his child and death to reign in Egypt before he understands. But you also get this clue that he understands God in some way because he asks Moses and Aaron to bless him as he leaves. You see here in the 10th plague and final plague that God has finally defeated Pharaoh. And out of his love of Israel, he has brought divine justice and judgment on Egypt, but he's also uh, provided a a way to save them through a substitute, through a Passover lamb. But if you think about this for a second, what did Israel do uh, to deserve God's love? Why were they saved? Were Were they better people? Were they nicer? Had more faith? In what way do they deserve this from God, this, this, this escape from judgment? Uh, in my family, my, I, have, I have three kids, and often with my three kids, it often comes down to my family, what is fair? Always about what is fair. It's, what, it's um, who got what and how much they got, and why didn't I get the same? A big thing amongst my kids is juice. I said juice. Juice, right? Fruit juice. They love juice. My kids love juice. Now, juice is full of sugar, hence why they love it. They're little sugar fiends, little sugar addicts. That's who they are. It's like a drug they can't get enough of. Anyway, so we decided as, as parents, Katie and I, that each kid would just get one cup of juice a day to try and limit their addiction. And uh, it normally comes at breakfast time. And so when you pour the cups of juice in the morning, their little eyes are watching like hawks, like just zeroing in on that cup of juice, making sure that every single cup is, has the exact same amount of juice in it, exact same amount, or, or, or sugar, really, uh, as their siblings. And if they don't get the exact milliliter as their siblings, you hear this cry, that's not fair. She got more than me. Jet got more than me. Indy got more than me. Why don't I get as much as them? It's all about what is fair and what they think they deserve. And it's often the cry in my house. It's not fair. They got this. I got that. That's what they want. They want, they want what is fair and what they deserve. You know, we read in this story of the angel of death, of God showing love and providing grace to, his, to, to, to Israel and providing a way out of judgment. So he passed over. But what did they deserve, deserve uh, to get? Did they deserve this grace? What did they do? You know what the answer is? The answer is they did nothing. 
They did not deserve anything. They actually deserved what Egypt got. See, Israel, if you look at the story of the Bible so far from down here where we are here through to this, it, God's people, when you read the story of Genesis, they actually did not worship God as He deserved. They did not follow Him or worship Him. They were sinful before they even got to Egypt. And after leaving Egypt, they're going to be sinful again. If you follow the story a bit further, after they are rescued out of, uh, out of slavery, they turned and worshipped a golden cow within months and thanked the cow for getting them out of Egypt. And they often start saying things in the desert like, it's so much better in slavery. We had meat back then. We should go back to slavery again. And are so ungrateful for what God has done for them. They are ungrateful and sinful. So why does God love them? Why does God love them? Well, from the Bible, we understand that he, that's who He is. He is a God full of love and full of grace. and He's motivated by His own glory to show, himself who, to show us who He is. It's His grace. And this is the God of the Bible, the same God we worship today. God is a God of love and kindness and mercy. And His love for His people motivates Him to pursue them, to show kindness, to show grace. The Israelites deserve death and judgment, but God in His grace chose to show them the way of salvation through His blood on the door. And they had to put blood on their doors because they were as guilty as the Egyptians. And they needed a substitute to die in their place if they were to avoid the judgment of death. This angel of death came to take life. And so what happened was a substitute had to step in it had to be a life for a life. A life for a life. It had to be a swap. See, all around Egypt, the death count was the same. The question is, who died? A person or a lamb? A person or a lamb? The lamb is a substitute and the blood on the door is a sign that the substitute or the sacrifice has been, has been made. They needed a substitute. What do you think of for a second? It doesn't seem fair or right that a lamb could step in the place of a person. That's not a like for a like sort of swap, is it? It's not a person for a person, it's an animal for a person. So what's going on there? Well, if you keep reading the Bible, you see that the lamb is actually a pointer, a promise to a true substitute. The Passover in, in, in its event is actually a greater sign of redemption that will come in the future. And thousands of years later, you meet a man called John the Baptist who is in the desert and he proclaims this from 1 John 1.29. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God, looking at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus comes as the true substitute, as the true Lamb of God. We read this in 1 Peter 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your, from your ancestors, but instead with the precious blood of Christ, who is what? A lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is the true Passover lamb, and he was sacrificed in our place as our substitute. You know the Bible, when you look at the Bible, what it says about who we are and who we are as a people, it says, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
it's not hard to look around the world or even to look inside to see that we don't always follow God. We don't always always love Him as He ought. And we have fallen short of Him. And because of our rebellion against Him, we deserve judgment and the wrath to be uh, faced uh, for our sin. But God, out of who He is, sent His one and only Son as as, as, as a Passover lamb as our substitute to die in our place to atone for our sin, to face the penalty we deserve. It's his life for ours, a life for a life. And Jesus stepped in for us to face the wrath of God, to pay the penalty we deserve for our sin. He is the Passover lamb. Judgment passes over us. And Jesus' blood, as if it were, was almost painted over our lives. So God's judgment goes over us and passes over us. And just like the Israelites, we didn't deserve this. But God, out of His love, rescues us and provides the substitute, Jesus. The book of Acts says, salvation is found in no other name but Jesus Christ. It is by His grace we are saved. So that means it's not about our efforts or our performance or how our feelings are or how strong our faith is. It's the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith, that gives us hope and salvation. It's the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith, that gives us hope and salvation. And our confidence and the victory over sin and death is in the, is in the finished work of Jesus, our Passover lamb. This is what the story of the Passover is pointing to. And that is ours in Jesus. We also see that this Passover lamb leads to freedom. And the Israelites are set free by the blood of the lamb, this Passover lamb. And this is why it's known as the Exodus. Let me show you this from chapter 12, 33 and 34. The Egyptians were urgent after, this, after Pharaoh says go. They were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall be dead. So the people took their dough before it was uh, uh, leavened. And, they need, and their kneading bowls bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. So the Israelites are hurried out of Egypt. Sentence 37 and 38 say this, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sokoth, about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. And a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So most likely over one million people traveled out of slavery, out of Egypt, and left at this moment. You know, I often try and think, I wonder what, you know, just a simple Joe Israelite was thinking as this moment happened. Can you imagine the feeling of freedom would have come over them? They would have been in slavery day in, day out, seven days a week, and thinking, if I have any kids, they too will be slaves like me. Being mistreated, being flogged, just being harsh conditions, thinking, this will never end. But God intervenes miraculously. And he frees his people and he redeems them from slavery. This sense of freedom, I can't even understand what they're feeling. This sense of freedom, being freed from slavery, redeemed and brought out. And a million people moving out of Egypt. We read this in chapter 13, sentence 3. Then Moses said to his people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for, uh, for by the strong hand of the Lord, brought you from this place. 
It's the mighty hand of God that frees them from slavery. And they are walking out finally free. After years of mistreatment and cruel masters, they are free. And Moses says to the people, remember this day. Remember, don't forget what God has done for you. And they are to now live as freed people. Not to forget, but to live in light of this freedom as his people. You know, just like Israel, we have been redeemed through the blood of the Passover land. We have been bought and purchased and saved from death and slavery to sin. We have been saved from that into a relationship with God. We are now His children, His loved, known forever children, being who we're meant to be, living in this relationship we were made for. And God has redeemed us and bought us to be His people here now on earth, bringing, being His kingdom people here now on earth, pursuing love and justice and peace and mercy, showing Him to a world that needs to know. And we too are to live in light of what God has done for us in Christ, the Passover lamb. We have been liberated, redeemed from slavery to self and to sin and to destruction to be His people now. Our master is no longer sin, but a loving father who leads us and calls us to be His lights in this world. 1 Peter 13 to 17 uh, uh, makes His calling clear. Look at this. It says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that He brought it will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not conform to the passions of the former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your con- conduct, since it was written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are to be holy because we are now redeemed. We've been bought, we've been purchased from, a, from slavery to sin and the empty, futile ways of this life by the blood of Jesus. We're to live as God's people. We are redeemed for a purpose. We're to be holy because He is holy. And we're to show the world what it means to have true freedom, to be who you created to be, God's people. You know, who Israel were as a people was shaped and influenced by the Exodus and the Passover. God rescuing them. And this event is what shaped them forever as a people. At the start of this, I asked you what moment has most shaped you and influences you and how you live and view the world and how you, how, what you do and how you view yourself. I want to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to live in the freedom that Jesus has purchased for you as our Passover lamb. Live out being the child of God Jesus has bought for you through his blood. I want to encourage you to live the cross-centered life. Let all that is yours and has been given to you by Jesus be at the front, of, uh, front and center of your life now. I want to plead with you, like the Israelites, remember. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. They are called to remember a Passover lamb. We have so much more now. We have the true thing. We have the lamb of God, Christ himself. We're to live in light of that truth. Know who God is and what He is like through the cross. A God who loves you so much right now as you are that He sent His Son to seek and to save you. And He's placed in you a seal. He's got Himself, the Holy Spirit, in you and saying, you're my child. Relate to Him as your good Father. As an all-knowing, powerful, sovereign Lord who you can also call Dad. 
coming to him, pleading before him, knowing him deeply. I want to say, let the cross of Christ define you and how you view yourself in this world. So many of us run to things of the world that weren't meant to define us. We run to relationships, to money, to power, to prestige, to, to whatever it is. We try and find our meaning and purpose in them, saying, this is what I'm like. And when they fall and crumble, we crumble with it. We crave the affection or the, or the affirmation of others in our life. We're enslaved by that. The cross of Jesus Christ is once and for you are mine, you are loved, you are known by the King of the world. We need to define ourselves by that. Pursue relationships, pursue careers, pursue achievements, whatever. Work hard. Love people, but don't let them define who you are. And don't give up, give up, give up Jesus to pursue those things. Live in light of being a child of God forever. Your future is guaranteed. You have an inheritance. We have an inheritance that will never spoil, perish, or fade. I don't think we can comprehend what it will be like in those final days. But I want to say, let that truth of God's promise of paradise uphold you. The best is yet to come. Run to Him when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel lost, when you feel lonely, because you know they have a Father who is in heaven, who is saying, come to me as you are, weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Who says to you, I'll never leave nor forsake you. Remember that we'll meet God in judgment one day. We'll see Him face to face. Live in light of the judgment day. And love people and show them how to be, have a relationship with that creator, with that judge. Live as light, showing the freedom that can be theirs in Christ. You need to remember this freedom, this salvation has been given to you, purchased by Jesus, your Passover lamb. And let that truth shape how we live now as freed, loved people. Living the cross-centered life. Let me pray for us. Father, in the story of the Exodus, we see your love so clearly displayed. We see the way for judgment to pass over us. Father, as we have the true Passover lamb now, as he has come, King Jesus, and died in our place, a life for a life, Lord, help us to not become complacent with that, apathetic towards that. But help us to live in light of the cross and what it shows of who you are, of who we are now. Help us to see you're a God of mercy and grace. Help us to be defined by what you say about us. Help us to live in that freedom being forever loved children of yours. Help us to see that this is not all there is. The best is yet to come, that you have secured a place for us in eternity and help that to shape how we live now, not holding the things of this world. Lord, do a deep work in our souls. We need to hear this. I need to hear this. Lord, as we leave here tonight, as we leave here this afternoon, we want to pray that these truths of the gospel would just transform us as we hit our days tomorrow with uni or work or whatever stresses come. We want to pray that you would help us to remember 
to hold on to this truth that is the anchor for our soul. Lord, help us to live as your people, as lights, radiating you, a God of love, of justice, of peace, of mercy. Help us to run to you for strength. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.